Well, if your life is anything like mine, and I hope it's not too much like mine, uh, you've had those moments where you know what you're getting into, only to later realize you did not. <laughs> like the timeshare presentation Andrew and I attended on our honeymoon. <laughs> the one where we were supposed to score free massages was only supposed to last an hour. It did not. It lasted a couple hours, at least. Or that used car we bought uh, that ran great on the test drive. And then over the course of the next couple of years, uh, costly repairs added up quickly and very costly. Or even that time I tried making fajitas out of some leftover poultry. It turns out turkey's different than chicken. It doesn't taste great with fajita vegetables. <laughs> there was one occasion on our honeymoon where Andrew and I uh, signed up to go to a bullfight. Uh, there in Cancun. And I had never been to a bullfight, never seen one on TV. Uh, all I had seen was Ferdinand. <laughs> I didn't realize they killed the bull at the end. <laughs> and so what I thought would be pageantry and technical skills demonstrated uh, turned out to be something quite different. I will never go to another bullfight in my life. I will just buy my beef at the store. But even when we imagine that we have things all figured out, we know what's coming, we get it wrong in the end. That happens in life more often than we care to admit. And our readings this morning, uh, the epistle reading, the gospel reading, remind us uh, that we can get discipleship wrong, that we can actually get this endeavor, this enterprise, this following Jesus. There's a wrong way to do it, which tells us the hopeful thing is there's a right way as well. So our gospel reading this morning, as we turn our attention to that text first, uh, you'll know this from the context, it follows two stories, uh, two important stories that are probably very familiar to uh, many of us, particularly those uh, who are familiar with the biblical story. Uh, you'll know that this story follows Jesus' baptism, and then it also follows uh, his time in the wilderness of being tested. In addition to being uh, fairly well known, each of those stories follow biblical patterns, and so it's helpful for us as we hear those patterns and we refresh our memory with those uh, as we look at our own text. We know that in the baptism there on the shores of the Jordan, that this follows the pattern of God's people. When they were going into that land of promise, they crossed the Jordan. You might be familiar with the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, but when they went into the promised land, they crossed the Jordan. It was a, an important event going from a wandering people to a people that were settled who were entering into God's rest. And at this place, we see Jesus as he's on the shore of the Jordan, as he goes into those waters. In many ways, he's preparing that new exodus, this new Moses, this new leader who will take people into that land of promise. Of course, the wilderness testing, we know that from the ancients. Uh, ancient Jewish people who are wandering in the wilderness following their time in Egypt. There's a time of testing there in that space and in that place. And Jesus, too, will be tested. But Jesus also follows another familiar pattern. One of a, another person. And Jesus serves as a new Adam at this time. As one who is tempted, but yet is not overcome by those temptations. Again, here's a nod to what's coming. This new creation that will be ushered in. So we see these biblical patterns that are emerging just from the stories that are leading up to uh, the gospel reading we had this morning. Of course, this chapter also, or this section, follows, or what's followed in the next chapter is the Sermon on the Mount which is a popular section of Matthew's gospel there in Matthew chapter 5 and reading through chapter 7. 
And there we see Jesus on a mountain. We see Jesus interacting and dispensing the law. If we hear mountain and you hear law, who do you think of in biblical patterns? Moses, right? Moses. So again, a nod to that new Exodus, this new Moses type pattern. But with that familiarity and with these type of stories, we might think, oh, our text is a transition piece. It's something to get us from point A to point B. Uh, one of my uh, colleagues back east would talk about uh, some of the books in the Old Testament. He would refer to them as biblical flyover country. And this might be one of those pieces where you say this is a biblical flyover chapter where we're just flying over it on our way from one destination to another. But if we do that, we're going to miss something important. We're going to miss something that's worth mining here. And as they say, there's gold in them, their hills. And there's gold here for us as well. Verse 12, John is arrested. And here's somewhere where that gold starts showing up. Jesus withdraws to Galilee. It's tactical, but it's not hiding. We know that because in verses 23 and following, clearly Jesus is operating in a very public way. And in verse 17, he's going to be continuing the message of John. That would not be a very safe choice based on where John's at in verse 12, right? So if John's incarcerated uh, for speaking out on various things, uh, Jesus following that pattern would also not be a safe way to go. And it's a reminder to me and to all of us, I think, here, that if you're looking for the safe way, you're looking for groceries, not discipleship. You thought you weren't going to get a bad joke early on in this sermon, did you? Some of you came here and you said, you know what, I think this is the week that we're not going to hear a bad joke. And there, there it was. We're going to pause and let that soak in just for a second. Jesus' move is a fulfillment of prophecy is what our writer wants us to hear in this text. He wants us to know that right from the get-go. So again, he's not going into hiding. It's a tactical move. And the tactical move is this can be a fulfillment of prophecy. And the prophecy specific here is Isaiah chapter 9. And that prophecy tells us what Jesus is up to. First of all, we see that Jesus is going to be working within a pattern and working within a, a sphere in which he's going to return people from exile. And you say, what? How did you get that out of that? Where did that come from? Well, Jesus is in Nazareth, which is located in the territory of Zebulun. And he goes to Capernaum, which is located in the territory of Naphtali. Both of those are clearly associated with the Isaiah text. We see those quoted both in Matthew's gospel here, but also in the original quote there in Isaiah. But it's important for us to note that according to Jewish tradition, that those two tribes were considered the initial tribes that were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And so when we talk about the first two tribes that are to be conquered and taken away that are blown up, essentially, and become the first two of the ten lost tribes, it's these two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. So who better than to first see the great light than the first tribes that are taken into captivity? And Jesus, as this great light who emerges on the scene, will begin his ministry, his proclamations, there in those two communities. The second thing that we see is he's going to expand the rescue here. And so if our initial thinking is that we're just going to talk about something that's Jewish, a Jewish rabbi amongst Jewish people and people that are ethnically Jewish, uh, that would be the wrong answer according to Matthew, and it would be the wrong answer according to Isaiah as well, who's quoted here. And the writer could have left with just the two tribal names. Could have just left at that, and we would have known that's a reference to Isaiah. But chooses to include Galilee. And we know from the Isaiah text that this is uh, included with Galilee and the Gentiles. There's a connection there between these. And what Jesus is up to will not be limited here 
to ethnic Jews. But eventually, you're going to see at the end of Matthew's gospel, again, we're drawing from Matthew here, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, we're going to see a commission that sends his followers to all the nations. And so there's a little bit, a little bit of light that opens here for what's to come in the future. That what Jesus is up to is incorporating not just the Jewish audience, but all the nations. And he starts his ministry, he takes his first steps out, and his first words that are spoken are intended to be out to all the world, all the people, that that's what's coming. Of course, the reclaiming from exile would require a reconstituting of the tribes. Like I said, there was ten lost tribes. And he sets out in our own text with the calling of the disciples. And he calls a few here in this text, but eventually he's going to call 12. And how many tribes were there? 12. And so we see that reconstituting of the tribes, again, speaking to what Jesus is up to and the ministry and the mission that he's launching at this point. Of course, uh, we should note how they respond to such a call. And Jesus calls out to these initial followers, and their response I think it's captured well by a commentator named R.T. France who writes this, Jesus calls for a decisive response to a new situation. And that new situation is the arrival in his ministry of the kingdom of heaven. And he gets a decisive response, and we see that from this writer, that people are going to leave, that they're going to assume this new Christian identity, and they're going to leave their vocations, and they're going to come and follow. They're going to leave their places of work, and they're going to come and follow. They're going to leave their family, and they're going to come and follow. Now, we don't want to get crazy here at this point and have people here go, I'm following Jesus. I'm going to leave all my responsibility and obligations and go follow Jesus. Now, we note that the text doesn't say they sold the family business. It doesn't say things like that. They're not deserting people. But it's trying to point out the decisiveness. The call is a decisive response, and they're responding accordingly to that call. What we hear in this, of course, is that our Christian identity is not meant to be an accessory. It's not meant to be for us to be visiting tourists in the kingdom of God. But rather, there's a choosing to follow when that call goes forward to us. And when we follow, when we say yes, our yes is yes. And that's what's being illustrated here in these lives. That Jesus is going to give to these followers. Jesus, as their new master, is going to give them a new vocation. He's going to change their life. He's even going to nickname a couple of them in the process. It's a beautiful picture of the life of discipleship. It's a beautiful picture of what it means for those to come and follow Jesus in that initial ministry, which leaves me with the question, what on earth happened in Corinth? <laughs> what happened there? How can we go from a beautiful picture of Jesus starting this, this group and this following to end up in Corinth, which is about far from beautiful as we can get? We turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And looking at our text in verses 10 through 18, right from the get-go, we hear there's an issue that regards the church's discipleship. Paul says, I appeal to you in the first part of verse 10. You don't say that unless there's a problem. Something is out of sorts here that needs to be addressed. Something is in need of correction. And that something is factions that we see. And we talked about that last week briefly in the sermon. But here we have the factions in the second part of verse 10. So Paul employs here anti-faction appeals. And here's what those look like. Be in agreement. No divisions among you. Be knit together. Same mind, same purpose. It's an effort here by Paul to issue a corrective because Paul knows 
that factions breed, and we said this last week, friction. That it breeds all kinds of friction. In verse 11, we see that friction. It's not the potential for friction, but rather actual quarrels are being reported. And this kind of thing isn't isolated to the ancient church, but to our own day as well. When we divide ourselves up in factions, we start to blow things up. Things get expensive. Things get difficult. Things get destructive really quick. So the Apostle Paul here, to add another word to the factions and the friction, enters the fray. And he writes here, he, steps himself, he takes a step into that. And he does so in a way that we might not expect. We saw that with Paul last week with Corinthians. But here, he very easily could have applauded the faction that was with Paul. Right? They have these different factions with Paul, with Apollos, with Cephas, who is Peter. Right? You have all these different groups. He could have said, that with Paul group, they got it right. Right? You other guys, I don't know what you're talking about, but that with Paul group, we're with it. That's, that's my boys. That's my boys. Come on now. Come on. And of course, we see that he'll use a similar appeal in 1 Corinthians 11. When he talks about, follow me as I follow Christ. So we see that kind of appeal happen. But he doesn't do that here. He doesn't play the faction game here. Instead, he wants to create a focus here for his hearers, for his readers, for this audience that allows them to not be off-focused. He wants them to be focused on the one who calls to come and to follow. So to the Corinthian church, the factions make sense, right? Follow Apollos. We like the way he says it, right? Apollos was known for being this person with great rhetorical ability, right? He's a great preacher. We're going to follow Apollos. Of course, Paul makes sense, right? Because he's a founder, right? This is the founder. This is the original. We've got to get back to the original here. And Peter, well, he knew Jesus. That guy was chums with Jesus. We've got to follow that guy. Paul says follow Jesus. Living lives marked by the message and the power of the cross. Paul's own ministry is marked by that cross. But if you like your faction or tribe, you drive your, you drive your identity and your purpose, your sense of who you are within that group's echo chamber. And it's hard to hear that message that's calling you out. And of course, it gives you a certain kind of status when you're amongst your own people. And of course, when you have that status, when you live in that echo chamber, any talk about a cross would be crazy talk. I'll stick with my own imagination. Thank you very much. But the cross is a central feature of the message that Paul is preaching. And we learn just a few verses later in verse 23 that Paul preaches Christ crucified. Roy Shiner will observe on the Gospel Coalition site that to preach this is sheer contradiction. Shiner says that it would be the same as saying, we preach Messiah, executed. We preach dead king. We preach crushed crusher. We preach weakling warrior. Who would want to follow that? The cross? That's silly talk. That's crazy talk. And of course, Shiner's conclusion here is one that I'm sure many of the first century audience there at Corinth and any observer of that day would certainly conclude it's all madness. doesn't make sense. But this isn't just limited to Jewish hearers alone. In her book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ, Fleming Rutledge will uh, note this. She says, the crucifixion as, a, or crucifixion as a means of execution in the Roman Empire had as express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. It was meant to indicate to all who might be toying with subversive ideas that crucified persons were not of the same species 
as either the executioners or the spectators, and were therefore not only expendable, but also deserving of ritualized extermination. How then could one even associate a monstrous, a monstrous instrument of shame, torture, and death with the Messiah, with the coming king, with this anointed one sent by God? And how could he even speak to what God was up to? How would you even associate that with that? Paul, you're out of your mind. Like, what are you talking about here? And how could it even be associated with the phrase, the power of God? As we hear in verse 18, this crosstalk is foolishness to those who are perishing. And for good reason. It doesn't make sense. And of course, in our own day, where depictions of sanitized and stylized crosses abound, with jewelry, decorative arts, even tattoos, just to name a few, we seem so far removed from this picture of torture and shame and this instrument of death. But remember the call here. The call is to decisive response. I'm not sure there is one who has said it quite as clear as the 20th century pastor and theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who writes in Discipleship, which has also been titled The Cost of Discipleship. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our, over our lives to death, thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And this part of the quote is probably the most famous portion. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, It may be a death like that of the first disciples, who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. That's a decisive response. And that's also a decisive transformation of persons. It's the power of God to transform us to a new life. Not imagined, but real. A life that has real implications and those implications include tearing down the factions that we might create amongst ourselves now you might say wait a second jimmy here what factions are you talking about we don't have factions not us we're not like the corinthian church but maybe we don't let's say we don't if we don't i'd be curious to know how come these headlines continue to make their way in our media why are Christians gathering themselves around tribal identities which mirror political affiliations? How come a generation ago when we had conversations about the divided church, it was about doctrine and theology? Or, if we were to color brand it, it was about the color of the church. Why is the black church separate from the white church? But today, we ask and we add to those lists, how come we have the red church and the blue church? to our color spectrum. Color associations represent factions. I may not follow Apollos, but I certainly could follow a certain political party. 
Or the church is aligning themselves with political figures and ideologies to the extent that moral arguments are constructed that morally approve of invasions and atrocities. We saw the headlines of the Russian Orthodox Church and their close alignment to Vladimir Putin and Putin's war, so much so that moral justifications were offered for the invasion of Ukraine. And we say, yep, those guys, they got it wrong. Over there on that side of the pond, they got, they got it wrong. They blew it. But not us. I've been reading a book lately called Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys. I would recommend it if you want your, your brain scrambled. <laughs> but Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys makes the point of historically how the church aligned itself with political associations here in this country as we worked hand in hand to exterminate the Native Americans. And we find ourselves creating factions, not only in those old generations. Again, we say, this is all history stuff, right? This is history. This is not us. That's somebody else. Not us. Well, then how do we explain a certain former president who expresses disappointment, disappointment that the evangelical voting bloc has not sided with his campaign at this point? There's an expectation there. There's an expectation that the church and politics certain kinds of politics will walk hand in hand. And that's factions. Those are factions. And we create them because they make us feel comfortable. It makes us feel comfortable about one another and around each other as we serve together. But remember what I said about Safeway and discipleship. Of course, locally, those factions can form quite easily. I take the liberty here of looking at the characters that show up in 1 Corinthians we might appeal ourselves to history, the founders, like Paul, and say our own local history as I make decisions and choices over and against others, as I close my ears are being made because I'm holding on to history and nostalgia. I'm holding on to a generation that isn't here anymore and trying to be true to them. It's a natural human response. This is natural. We all do this. But it's one way of creating a faction. Or maybe I don't like the preacher this morning. I know, I, I have a tough time with the preacher here. <laughs> I talk to him all the time. But maybe you're like, oh, I could find a better preacher. The internet provides that for me. And so we form a faction, perhaps, just like we go and follow in the first century Apollos. Or maybe I want to be with someone who's closer to Jesus than I might feel I am. So I chase after the mystic, or the person who really, really knows Jesus, like Peter. He knew Jesus. These are all places that germinate and form and grow places for factions in our life that they're not tended to. And so we want to tend to them as a community because we know Christ's call is for decisive action, to come and to follow, and not to follow factions, but to follow Christ. The cross marks us in this occasion. It checks us. And like Paul, it reminds us. And we know that same cross, it checked Paul. This person who had the status, who had the pedigree, who had the training, who certainly had the rhetorical ability as we see demonstrated in his writing, and who certainly was close to Jesus, he himself is checked not to form a faction around himself, but rather to follow Christ. And here's the thing. When we follow Christ, we discover the power of God. And we recognize that that instrument of death, the cross, leads us to something that we can't even fathom and that being life itself. May it be so for our generation and for each one of us this day.